All right, good evening, comrades, and welcome to the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. Tonight is August 29th, 2023, and I want to thank you all for being here. Our class tonight is going to be a presentation from the Housing Commission of the Party of Communists USA on the housing struggle today, uh, and they've got a bunch of texts to read from and whatnot, so it's going to be a pretty jam-packed class. Uh, just before we get started, though, a couple reminders. The People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies is a PCUSA-initiated and sponsored school, but it is not the party school, which is great because it allows a wide variety of different perspectives and opinions to be brought forth, which don't necessarily reflect the party line, uh, but there are plenty of party comrades here that can let you know what we think about these things. Yeah, well, I, I did want to say um, for the first section, we're going to be reading from... Um, a book called Life Without Landlords. It's, um, the book is, you know, all of it is excerpts from the book. Uh, it's a little bit lengthy in text, but I had to go through and uh, select relevant parts of the book and it was hard to cut it down a little bit, but I think it'll uh, really get a good view of what uh, Soviet housing was like. All right. Thank you, comrade. So we'll go ahead and get started. Cities Without Crisis, Chapter 3, Life Without Landlords by Mike Davidoff. Learning from other pamphlets on the relationship between war, housing, and jobs. An emphasis on jobs when we talk about housing in the Housing Commission. You can't get around the question on employment, especially in a capitalist society, and about their history and today. Next slide. Yeah, so this is um, housing in the USSR. Um, uh, we wanted to give an idea of what housing could look like in a socialist society. Of course, we live in a capitalist society, so we'll have some um, work later on what it could look like in a capitalist society done by the Communist Party. But the book that we're referencing for the first section is uh, Cities Without Crisis, and it's uh, Chapter 5, Life Without Landlords by Mike Davidow. The social worries facing the Soviet people arise largely from the unresolved problems that still exist in Soviet society in the period of socialism and are complicated by the effects of World War II. Among them is a serious housing shortage. But the Soviet people know that these are temporary worries. This knowledge is based not on blind faith or self-delusion, but on solid reality. This is hardly the outlook our urban dwellers have, and our being the U.S. Um, citizens. Let me just illustrate it with this one fact. The New York Times, June 5th, 1969, notes that at the rate of public housing construction of homes people with low incomes could afford in the United States, such families could expect to move into a project in 51 years. It points out, to solve this problem, New York City needs right now 780,000 new subsidized apartments, but the federal housing program in its 34-year history has produced only 800,000 units across the entire country. By contrast, 
the Soviet Union constructed 11,350,000 new or improved apartments in the first five-year period, 1966 to 70, about 2.3 million a year and another 12 million during the ninth five-year plan, 1971 to 1975. These homes will be constructed for those who need them and not for those who can afford to pay most for them. Homes are built for people, not for profit. And on the side, I have a cartoon, a propaganda that reads, built to last and built fast. Soviet citizens have no rent worries. This is not only because they have no landlords, but because they hardly pay rent. 4% or less of one's income. U.S. rent payers would laugh at Soviet rents. Take our family. When we left the States, we were paying $150 a month rent, not too high by U.S. standards. But when my wife, Gail, visited our apartment in the Bronx in May 1972, the rent had gone up to $235 a month. By contrast, our rent in Moscow remained static for five years at 18 rubles, 30 kopecks a month. That's about $20 um, at, the, at the time, um, U.S. dollars. We had three large rooms. They don't count the kitchen as a room there, with all modern conveniences. I have before me our rent book. Here is how it breaks down. 12 rubles, 32 kopecks for the apartment itself. 4 rubles, 19 kopecks for heat. All apartments are centrally heated. 1 ruble, 20 kopecks for water and sewage. 50 kopecks for radio. 15 kopecks for the TV antenna. And in comparison with our friends, Ours was a higher than average rent. As for utilities, for gas, the average monthly charge was 22 kopecks per person. It was recently reduced from 32 kopecks. Can Americans remember their last utility reduction? Electricity was a little higher, about four or five rubles a month in winter and about five rubles in summer. We paid two rubles, 50 kopecks a month for telephone for unlimited local calls. And on the side, I have a picture of why it was so cheap there. They, they uh, really revolutionized the prefabrication of homes. They build them in, in um, factories and then ship them out and just assemble them on the site. So they were able to get through a lot of housing really quickly. The Soviet Union is well on the road to becoming the first country in history to solve the housing problem for its people. No social system besides socialism ever set itself such a goal, let alone demonstrated that it can be done. What this means in retrospect to resolving the problems of modern cities can hardly be overestimated, for the problem of urban living is, first of all, homes. I often thought, what would be the effect on the lives of the mass of the U.S. urban dwellers, especially in the black ghettos, the Puerto Rican and the Chicano barrows, if they were truly guaranteed the security of their homes, if they lived with the realization that they were assured 
the comforts of home, in quotations, as their normal right? And what effect would all this have on reducing the tensions which are ripping our cities apart? A. Allen Bates, Director of the Office of Standards Policy of the U.S. Department of Commerce, told a congressional hearing, quote, The Soviet Union is the first and thus far the only nation which has solved the problem of providing acceptable low-cost housing for the mass of its citizens. In the USSR, all housing built in the last 20 years has been deliberately designed as low-cost housing. In the United States, no housing built during that period or now designed for future construction can be characterized as low-cost housing, end quote. And Bates added, slums are not profitable under the Russian form of economy, end quote. And one may well ask, why should they be profitable in our country? It had to construct not only for those who lived in the cities at the time of the revolution, but for the millions who were streaming into the cities from the countryside under the impact of the socialist industrialization program. This program transformed the Soviet Union in record time from a backward agricultural country into an advanced industrial country. In terms of the urban problems, this meant that between 1926 and 1971, the population of the cities increased by more than 110 million. It is now more than 140 million out of 250 million. In 1940, after substantial progress had been made in urban housing construction, the Soviet Union was struck by the Nazi Holocaust. No country in history ever suffered such destruction of life and property as did the Soviet Union in the war for years, 1,710 towns and urban settlements, 70,000 villages, 32,000 industrial enterprises, thousands of medical, educational, and cultural establishments were destroyed. Great cities like Kiev, Stalingrad, Minsk, Sevastopol, Odessa, Novogrod, Puskov, and Oryal were turned into ruins. Heroic Leningrad lost one-third of its population, 900,000, and much of the city was severely damaged. Not only were there 20 million war dead, but 25 million people were homeless. This was the housing problem the Soviet Union confronted. The inheritance from a backward past, the demands arising from unprecedented industrialization, and the destruction wrought by the most barbaric war machine in history. Never before did a country face such a combination of problems all packed within the space of half a century. All right. And with that, we'll go ahead and stop for our first round of questions and comments. Yeah. So um, I wanted to make a remark that, you know, you, you here in the, the U.S. and I, I, I can't speak for other Western countries. I imagine the dialogue is pretty similar, but um, the biggest criticism with um, the Soviet housing was that it looked bland and uh, and uh, just not aesthetically pleasing. But the thing is, is you have to understand after World War II, they had such a horrible uh, housing crisis. And uh, so they were able to build millions of housing units very quickly. So, you know, the, this idea that it wasn't as aesthetically pleasing as as in our capitalist society, well, they didn't have homeless people. And this is despite having basically uh, all their big cities being destroyed by the Nazis. So, 
All right. Thank you, comrade. Comrade General Secretary Angelo from New York. Yeah, point. very, very important. If you look at the destruction that's going on in the Ukraine now, the buildings that are being destroyed, residential buildings, nobody tells you that they were all built under socialism. Capitalist Ukraine has not built anything. Think about it. They have not built anything. Everything was built under socialism. So the houses that have been destroyed by the apartment houses, by rockets and everything, no one's mentioning that under socialism, they built those houses to start with. That under fascism in the Ukraine, things are getting destroyed. Thank you. All right. Thank you, comrade. Yeah, you know me, a little rant. I just came back from the Vermont trip and passing through New Jersey, passing through New York. I've seen some ugly architecture in a capitalist world. I don't know why this is like, but a, a thing I've seen some ugly buildings for for high high rent in in capitalist countries and I, I just hate this uh this uh ongoing thing anyways thank you all right thank you comrade um yeah I know they said that the Soviet Union was the first and at this time only country to have solved the housing problem how what if any other socialist experiments have managed to accomplish that since this was written. Uh, thank you for your question, comrade. My personal opinion was I would say the People's Republic of China has made great strides for housing everyone and making sure that no one in the country is homeless or in substandard. But if uh, someone from the Housing Commission has a good answer, feel free to pipe up. I mean, the Soviet Union was the first nation to solve the housing crisis or the the housing problem. But obviously we have, like you just mentioned, China. Cuba also has no houseless. So they've pretty much solved that as well. And I don't I'm not sure about North Korea or Vietnam, but I'm sure it's a similar um, situation there. Yeah, I was going to say regarding Vietnam, I believe uh, after the Vietnamese took their land back from the French imperialists. They were able to give land to all of the Vietnamese citizens. So I don't know about housing specifically, but every Vietnamese citizen was supposedly granted uh, rights to a, a piece of land. Fantastic. Um, Comrade General Secretary, do you have uh, something you wish to add? Yes. Uh, I wanted to mention when I lived in the Soviet Union, 1976, um, I traveled to other cities. I want to give some background. Minsk, which is in Belarusia, is the capital of Belarusia now. Uh, was totally destroyed in World War II. Right. The only thing left standing in Minsk after World War II was a church. The rest of the city was destroyed, so everything had to be built quickly for the winter that was coming. So it wasn't built for beauty. It was built for utilization to make sure that every citizen got a warm apartment uh, that season after the war. Um, Minsk is the only city that is gray. I noticed that it was all gray buildings, gray concrete buildings. It was the most, un of all the Soviet cities, it was the one that did not look the nicest one. You could understand why. The other thing is that Kiev, it's important to know this, that Kiev was, uh, large numbers of Kiev were destroyed. Large numbers of Warsaw, Poland destroyed. It was built 
after the war by the Soviet government and the socialist governments of those countries. It's important that since the counter-revolution in 1991, there has been no large building going on in either Poland or in the Ukraine. And all the nice buildings that you see that are now um, have been attacked in this war that is going on in, in, in the Kiev and the Ukraine, it's amazing how the commentators don't mention that it was the Soviets and the communist governments that built these houses for the people. And under fascism uh, and under war, the houses are coming down. Nothing is going up. That should be mentioned. All Warsaw, Warsaw was given a gift by the Soviet Union of the famous sister buildings that they had in Moscow, which looks, they were called Stalinist architecture. It looks like a wedding cake, okay, with layers. Warsaw had nothing. So it's understandable that the present pro-fascist government of Warsaw has done nothing for its people, that it was the so-called bad Russians who built everything. Thank you. Thank you, Comrade Angelo. If I if I really find very curious and very surprising that the uh, Anglo-American Empire and the Germans and the the French, uh, why do like the the Vietnam War, the Korean War, when the Koreans celebrated independence, they did not even have a capital city; they destroyed it totally. And uh, what is very uh, strange is that they uh, destroyed the villages. And they used uh, very sophisticated modern weapons, you know, not uh, uh, not for the peasantry to rise again. So, if you see the level of destruction of this uh, merciless uh, mafias, and uh, put the equation of housing for solving the housing problems, they are really amazing. I mean, they were totally ashes, and they have uh, built from scratches. So, I think. North Korea has less housing problems than, than North America and the European Union. So we have to appreciate that. Vietnam, the same thing. Singapore, Cuba, you know. So, I mean, why these people, I mean, the people in power in the military industrial complex, how, how is it to be explained that they're so satanic? You know, they love to destroy, destroy civilization, destroy art, destroy agriculture, de- destroy... Uh, uh, industries. Do you think uh, future generations will ever remember these mafias, you know, as their leaders, you know, elected by the people like Congress, Senate, and stuff like that? So I think this is going to be a huge black mark on the future of on the future of this country to be respected globally in the future. It's very very bad. Thank you, comrade. Can I go ahead? Just one quick comment is just like if you looked at the shape of the houses, of course they weren't that pretty looking, but I mean, it was more about utilization than it was about um, aesthetics. Um, and I think that that's really what they were trying to accomplish. And they did accomplish that the utilization. Everyone had a house. There were no homeless. Um, and it's something that I think a lot of us Americans cannot relate to, um, especially in this generation. All right, we'll jump back into it. Housing in the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. And there's a picture here, the doc, 
Ostaka vacation home in the Soviet Union. It says, notice the hammer and sickle in the overhang. So contrary to the false picture of propertyless population under socialism, Soviet citizens can and do own their homes. Under Soviet law, however, they can't use their property to exploit tenants. Soviet citizens are permitted to build one- and two-story private homes, generally with not more than five rooms. They are allotted plots of land by the state free of charge. Such individual private homes are quite widespread in rural areas and small towns, and they constitute one-third of the total housing. These homes, which compare favorably with our own workers' and farmers' homes, are usually built by the collective or state farm construction organizations with state assistance. Loans are provided at about 2% interest. Incidentally, summer homes are quite numerous. Those who want to build dakas are given free land. Soviet housing is much more than bricks and concrete. It includes trees and greenery. Not speaking of now of parks, which occupy so much of their city's areas. Moscow, for example, has 20 square meters of greenery per person. Its surrounding environs bring the number up to 30. I'm referring to the parks that make up the backyards, courtyards, and every cluster of homes has such a courtyard or backyard. The greenery consists of a wooded area with park benches where one can rest and relax and children can play. One of the duties of the maintenance workers is to keep this area in good condition. Just the sight of the trees provides Soviet urban dwellers with relief from the oppressiveness of brick and concrete. Now, interestingly, tidbit, I was in Russia for the last festival of the World Festival of Youth and Students, and a person came up to our table and said that their mother, that was their job. They were actually a lawnmower, the maintenance person, and they had a house. Trees can form natural part of Soviet housing scene because they constitute a natural element in the planning of housing construction. Soviet houses grow with the city. It is part of a carefully thought out plan whose aim is to convenience, comfort, and culture brought to where people live. When a new area goes up, nurseries, schools, polyclinics, cinemas, sport fields, stores all go with them. The name given to these cities within a city is micro area. And here we have a quote from Paul Robeson, a famous African-American communist. He said, in Russia, I felt for the first time like a full human being. No color prejudice like in Mississippi. No color prejudice like in Washington. It was the first time I felt like a human being. In the more than five years, I walked the streets of Moscow and numerous cities in 14 republics. I never came across any racial or national ghettos. I never came upon slums or poor neighborhoods. I saw old rundown houses, but no area where the underprivileged live. No district in Moscow or in any Soviet city can be identified by race or nationality. This is true even in cities in the non-Russian republics, where, of course, citizens, that particular nation or nationality, predominate. In Alma-Ata, Kazakhstan, for example, Russians, Ukrainians, and other national groups live side by side with Kazakhs and Uyghurs. In Moscow, Leningrad, Kiev, Odessa, 
Kishinev, Riga, Vilnius, and Minsk, there are large numbers of Jews, but I never came once across a Jewish neighborhood. And here we have a picture of apartments in Lithuania, in Saliali city. There are no poor neighborhoods because there are no poor, no underprivileged. Though under socialism, there are those of higher income. You can never tell by the neighborhoods they live in. There are no slums because there are no slumlords. Thus, the buildings, as well as those living in them, are respected and cared for. There are no ghettos because racism and national discrimination, which create and profit from ghettos, have long been eliminated. Nothing more distinguishes Soviet cities from our own than the absence of those social sores that have made our urban centers of cities crises. No Soviet citizens return from a day's work to depressing areas defined by their class position or their color or the, of their skins. This is the meeting of life without landlords. Where one lives in our society determines how one lives. All this is wrapped up in the class character of our housing. This is the essence of the ghetto slum living. Oh, and we have uh, next round of questions and comments already. So this is kind of a minute point because it was actually mentioned in that last slide because I was reading this book and when I read that part where it talked about there was no like poor neighborhoods, well, that meant there were no rich neighborhoods as well. And I, it really made me, it was like I was something I could not relate to. I legitimately cannot relate to that living in the U.S. And um, I know that there are people that I work with that come from the suburbs and they hate coming down here to um i guess the urban areas put in quotes but they they really cannot relate to the people they they are disgusted by them and at the same time it's something that i guess i i don't know how that would have felt to live in the soviet union at that time i just found that point pretty impressive all right thank you comrade uh, comrade general secretary angelo from new york you have the floor yeah, when I was living there for three months, I had free reign of walking around. Everything that was just said is, is the God's honest truth. I felt I saw the future. And you know what? It does work. Capitalism is the past and it does not work. You can see it every day. Look at the people's faces, the drudgery of those that are going to work. What are they coming home from? from? Okay. Um, the fact that this was given up so that people could have blue jeans. Wow. It was given up so people could get blue jeans. That was the thing. They were mesmerized by my prescription sunglasses. Wow. They had a home that had a roof over the head that did not leak. They had a job, guaranteed. They had education, guaranteed. And the Western media, con, some of the young people, I hate to tell you, it's always the young people. I hate to tell you that, guys, that they're conned into thinking that this is not important, but what's important is sneakers and blue jeans. Insanity. Thank you. Yeah, it just annoys me because everyone 
kind of complains about houses and I say, oh, like, wouldn't it be good if the government just built houses? But and then everyone goes, no, I want to work for an earning. I'm going to do it like my parents did. And me, me, me. And, and yet, like Comrade Angelo said, there's this just thing where there's no stress. You can go home. You have a house. You can focus on being more productive in society. But because people, I guess, are so scared about or don't even know about personal versus private property, they think that. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know where we like, Comrade Angelo is right. We got bamboozled. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to say, well, first off to um, General Secretary, um, the yeah, this is a very relatable because this was actually written in the Brezhnev period when you were there. So uh, um, I'm sure the experiences were very similar. But um, I, I also wanted to say, yeah, I, I really think that this um, book if if we're allowed to, we should uh, be republishing it. Reading through this, you know, it, it actually made me feel a lot more optimistic coming out of it. I, I kind of went into a trance reading this, uh, all this uh, material, just seeing what housing could be, but it's not, you know, it's uh, it almost seemed like a fairy tale reading it. Thank you, comrade. There was one thing I remembered about that book. Um, it wasn't just housing. It was expendable income that the Soviet citizens had. I think the the statistic that he gave was the Soviet um, civilians, they could take 80% of their incomes back. Um, we'll find on the next section that is not the case in the U.S. 80%, that is after their housing, you know, any sort of taxes. They got that for whatever they wanted. Um, and they did go shopping. It, it really is like reading a fantasy book when you read that book. Because under socialism, everything was subsidized by the federal government. It was subsidized. The bread, the loaf of bread, the rent, the, the transportation. Three cents was a bus ride from one end of the city to the other. Three cents. So then you could say, yeah, but look what they only made, 150 a month. That 150 month was like 1,050 here because everything was subsidized. Over here, so you make $1,000. Meanwhile, the percentage rate of the cost of living has gone up 3 to 4% every year, every year since the 1960s. That's a fact, not my view. You all know that lately it's gone up really quickly. You go to supermarket, you buy eggs and bread, you spend twenty dollars. Eggs, bread, and bread and milk, basic staples. So it doesn't matter how much you make; it have it matters how much your money buys you. And under socialism, your small salaries bought everything, so that you had a lot of money to invest in your bank account. Savings accounts in the Soviet Union were the highest than any people on the planet. Interesting. All right. Thank you, comrade. Uh, yeah, and I, I also wanted to you know, continue off of what General Secretary said and that, you know, here we go based off of a nominal wage. Um, Marx in uh, Capital, he brought it up all the time that um, you know, that when there's nominal and real wages, nominal being the number value, but 
um, you know, and real being compared to the commodities it can uh, purchase. Here in the U.S., you'll see wages increase nominally, but that's only, but it doesn't take into account the inflation of all the other goods. It's there to make people feel like their wages are increasing while actually decreasing in, in reality. All right. Thank you, comrade. Yeah, I just want to piggyback off of what Angela was saying. Like, I, I explain to people all the time when they try to criticize socialist countries for, like, you know, quote unquote, being poor. It's like money under socialism isn't everything like it is under capitalism. You don't need money to do everything. You know, like there's so many things that are either free or subsidized. Like you can't measure it the same way as you would to like our society. Um, and just to add to the housing thing, I remember a few years ago I was on a trip in Bulgaria and our tour guy was just shitting on communism, saying like, "Oh, like the houses were so hideous. Like, they don't communists can't do architecture. They don't know architecture. Blah blah blah." It was just like the silliest thing. And I, had, I explained to my girlfriend at the time and her family, I was like, "Well, listen." After the fact, I was like, "Cause I wasn't gonna sit there and argue with this lady," but I was like, "Listen, like after World War II, like all the houses were destroyed, and they had to just like mass produce housing that could heat people's homes and like keep them safe during the winter." So it's like. It's really a testament to socialism that they built all those houses. They weren't designed to look pretty. They were just designed to do their function, which is house people and keep them warm. So, like, these people always have to leave the context out when they have to criticize socialism, which is really telling. Thank you, comrade. And I'll just add to that real quick that I think it's, you know, it's funny that a lot of, you know, capitalists or capitalist-minded people in the United States will go ahead and say that, oh, uh, the 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 housing under socialism, whether it be in the Soviet Union or in China or in the DPRK or wherever, um, is always hideous and it looks brutal and it looks boring and it looks all all like this. It looks disgusting. Um, what looks more hideous, actual housing that people can live in and have a stable life in, or you go to places like San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York, and you see plenty of homeless strung out throughout the streets on drugs and 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 uh, suffering from the the thralls of capitalism i think that that's more disgusting at the end of the day that we allow people to just live in squalor rather than actually live in a house yeah and when you consider that in the united states you've got people paying two three thousand dollars just for a three-bedroom um you know i'd be glad to take a brutalist uh, apartment in minsk or whatever as opposed to what we're having to do here so i definitely agree with the comrades on that uh, yeah, uh, Angelo would appreciate this. Uh, uh, everybody knows about, I'm sure, Park Avenue in New York, uh, one of the wealthiest uh, sections in the nation. Uh, we have a section, uh, a real rundown, uh, some area called Park Hill in Staten Island. And I would always tell people in Staten Island, you can't judge the Soviet Union by Park Avenue. You have to judge it by Park Hill. Compare right. it to Park Hill. And, uh, yeah, we didn't have some of the, you know, food refairs or architecture. But when you compare what the people of the Soviet Union had compared to what people in the poor uh, neighborhoods have, and, and even at Park Hill in the, in the United States, uh, whether it's uh, anywhere, whether Chicago or, or Los Angeles, when you get to the uh, the poor ghettos, uh, the housing is, is, is dilapidated. Some of the housing is is uh, some areas that should have been torn down. That should have been torn down. 
50 years ago that people are living there. Uh, so uh, so that's why the coin of phrase I use in locally in Staten Island. Uh, don't compare uh, Soviet Union to, uh, you know, Park uh, Avenue. Compare it to Park Hill. All right. Thank you, comrade. Yeah, I heard that $2,000 will get you a three-bedroom. Not where I'm at. $2,000, 2200 is like a single-bedroom. Uh, apartment for a, a studio to be like two grand a uh, two-bedroom apartment here in san diego county it's like 2500 2600 or more and that's all i had to say right thank you comrade yeah um so if you were to it's interesting how uh how the housing situation worked in the soviet union i believe also in china it's kind of like the government owns the land, so you can't privately own land. It's all for public. It's all under public ownership, but you could also build private houses and stuff on top of the land, if I'm not mistaken. But I mean, like, I guess in terms of like when I think of like somebody who who purchases a house, let's say here in America, and pays off the mortgage, well, then they still have to pay property taxes. So. Um, the question then becomes, uh, in a situation in a Soviet system, in like a socialist economic system like that, you don't obviously don't have that situation. How exactly does it differentiate? You don't have to pay the property taxes, I'm assuming, because the land is owned by the government, per se. Can, can someone kind of elaborate on that? So also in that book, I believe in an earlier chapter, he he writes that. The, the average Soviet citizen took home 80% of their income, but that was after taxes. That was after all their expenses from housing. They, they had 80% to um, basically save, do whatever they wanted with it. It was just because there was no profit incentive that they had to kind of accrue and put on the working class. We They did not have to worry about that. It was that good. It really was. Thank you, comrade. Um, comrade Angelo, you have the floor. Okay, very important. Uh, of all the countries in the world, Soviet citizens had the most saved in bank accounts, savings accounts, and you could understand why. Everything was subsidized. You know what that word means, everyone, subsidized. That means the state paid for it. That's why bread stayed the same price that it did in 1917 it was in 1986 could you imagine bread staying the same or anything staying the same over here every time you look uh to the left to the right everything is going up on the shelves of the of the food store then you look to the right and everything on the left goes up so it's just uh, amazing but what i wanted to mention is that very common, the managers of a factory. Now, they're not the owners. They're the managers. The managers of the state factory lived in the same pump, the apartment complex that the workers in that factory lived. Could you imagine that? So there wasn't no separate area for the managers separate from the workers. They all worked, they all lived in, in the same area, same complex. That's unheard of over here. 
there was no sections of uh, the wealthy live here on, uh, you know, Lenin Prospect, for example. Had they paying the same rent that they were any other place in Moscow. Thank you. Thank you, Comrade Angelo. Uh, yeah, um, I just wanted to say from this, you can uh, tell that uh, the American so-called socialist, or should I say West, uh, in the West, um, they like to pervert the idea of socialism as just something, just tax everything. When in reality, uh, the Soviet Union was true socialism. They nationalized industry. There's no need for taxes because the government owned it. And this is the ideal system. This is what we're fighting for, not some milk toast liberal social democratic ideal idea just to save capitalism. Thank you. I thought that was well said by the comrade. One of the reasons our school and the current associate groups with it exists is because of what the comrade was saying. What I guess you could say in the United States, people who call themselves communists are saying what is socialism or what is our view of ideology it's pretty clear to name a certain group, CPUSA, is to create communists as liberals. And so we have these different views competing of what is going to be socialism. Thank you, Comrade. Uh, I think, first of all, we have to understand the landmass of the Soviet Union is uh, maybe double as much as that of the United States. And in terms of uh, abundance in uh, raw materials, where it is one of the leading countries on the planet, is very resource-rich, and I think the socialist ideas are important is that socialism's emphasis is on taking care of the people. It's not about making big tanks or artillery or rockets or jet fighters and stuff. You know, so if the United States uh, did the same thing like uh, what Lenin and Stalin and the Communist Party did in their country, I think this country had uh, the resources that it squandered by going to wars, CIA, FBI, you know, uh, thieves, you know, the, the corporate system, thieves, the mafia. So I think this country would have solved with housing problem once and for all. But its national priority is not that. It's not taking care of Americans. Uh, because if the country is going perpetually to war against other countries, means it hates other peoples of the planet, so it cannot like its own people. You know, you cannot have uh, good two hearts, one heart for Americans and another heart for the rest of the world. So if the system is, is, is useless, so it has, it has to be transformed. It has, it has to go away. Thank you, comrade. The thing that I don't know if this is going to be brought up later, but about a lot of Soviet housing compared to American housing is they were safe to live in. Like, in the Soviet Union, things like lead and arsenic as ingredients in domestic infrastructure for people to live in and water valves were generally banned during the mid to late 60s, whereas... In the U.S., I have 
neighbors who still have lead pipes now. Goodness. Um, I don't remember where I read it from, but I did hear as well that any Soviet citizen that reached a million citizens got a new subway system installed on it, which it was one reason why just the constant threat of war from the United States was so horrible because it diverted resources that could have gone to that instead to building yet another instrument of war for defense. Yeah, I know I'm preaching to the choir here by saying this, but it's something that I find hard to actually imagine that there was no poor neighborhoods. So therefore there would be no rich neighborhoods. And I could just think about the dynamic here I have um, living in a kind of an urban area where I work with coworkers that are afraid to come to work here in the urban area. It's it's a strange world. Um, I they they don't feel comfortable with that. And there's some legitimate reasons, but at the same time, it creates that kind of ideology where they're you know want to be in their suburban white picket fence away from civilization. Um, I'm guessing they didn't have that in the Soviet Union, but, you know, I've never been there, so I wouldn't know. I just wanted to add that there was very little reason to commit crimes in the Soviet Union. Where here, people need to commit crimes to eat, to give their family livelihood, just because the system doesn't allow them to thrive. In the Soviet Union, they were allowed to thrive which made crime not be practical. That's all I have. Thank you, comrade. Does anyone know what housing is compared to now in Russia? Let's just stick with Russia just because it's the big, well, the biggest of the uh, former republics. Uh, as well, What's that compared to then to now? Like, is there like a, a significant... Uh, it's like a super significant increase in uh, a homeless population or because I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Uh, I've, I've, I've kind I've heard that in some, still in some parts of Russia, it's still kind of like got a somewhat of a, a quasi um, socialist uh, in terms of housing. Uh, that's not necessarily that they're not, not homeless, but there's, there's still kind of like a weird, mixture of socialist policies but you know some capitalist policies if anyone could answer that that'd be yeah okay i i can't speak on russia but i know for a fact that belarus still has one of the lowest uh cost of living in all of europe and that is directly because they kind of kept the same overarching system post-1991 the other soviet republics they went into like capitalism pretty rapidly so I'm not sure what the situation, but uh, Belarus is still considered just the lowest cost of living in in all of Europe. Even the West admits this. Thank you, comrade. Um, comrade Angelo, did you want to respond as well? Yeah. Well, the biggest change since 91 has been the following. People can't bury their dead anymore. Before that was um, the state took total care of when you passed away. They paid for your funeral, etc. Now people are forced since 91 to pay for their own. A lot of people aren't able to do it. This is what I've heard from a lot of sources uh, from the Soviet, the former Soviet Union. 
The other thing which I found very interesting, and I want to know what everybody thinks of this. So I lived there for three months, three or four months. I lived different cities, mostly Leningrad. Never heard fire engines. How could that be? There were fires. Never heard fire engines. And I found out why. Over here in Staten Island or Brooklyn, where I lived, every few minutes, every day, there were, there were fire trucks going through. Because a lot of the fires that were started in vacant buildings in, in this city or in, the, in, in Brooklyn were done by landlords who wanted to collect on fire insurance. So they set fire to their homes, to their buildings, not their homes, their warehouse buildings, whatever they owned. So the fire trucks were always on the way to put out fires. You didn't have that in the Soviet Union. There was no reason to burn down your your warehouse. No reason at all, because um, you didn't own it. It was owned by the government, by the state, by all the people in common. So there wasn't no deliberate fires. I found that fascinating when I was told that when I was there. Thank you. Thank you, Comrade Angelo. We'll take the next two hands and then we'll return to the presentation. Uh, yeah, I just got a question. Would modern-day Russia considered be state capitalism? And on that point, uh, I read something on Marxist.org. Is state capitalism the transitory stage between capitalism and socialism? Apparently, Lenin said that. Thank you. So, to answer the question, yes, Russia is a capitalist country, but Russia itself this current iteration of Russia, it's not like our country. In our country, they're called entrepreneurs. Over there, they're called oligarchs. But they didn't build anything. Everything was already built. The, the industry was already there. Uh, the infrastructure was already there. They didn't build anything. And so the, the whole system there is very different. Uh, like the way the cities are set up, as, as comrades have mentioned, it's everything is different. The way the cities are set up, even the way the jobs are, the structure of society is different. It really is different. So it is capitalist, but it is very different. And it's there's a huge communist movement, which cannot compare in any other country, really, except for a socialist country. And just everything, the, the various society to the songs you sing, to the way you wake up in the morning, like you go to school as a kid, every single thing has a tint of the Soviet history in that country. Thank you, comrade. I think what we hear, what we read, and what we read on the media about the uh, restoration of capitalism in uh, in the former Soviet Union and China, and uh, they call it oligarchical, authoritarian system and democratic. I think most of that is, uh, in my opinion, is most of it is uh, baloney under uh, a critical scrutiny of uh, the former Soviet Union. I don't ever think that it will totally go like a capitalist country like France, Germany, and Zena. It will never happen because the generation, this new generation and before, the, the country is institutionalized. They cannot even relate to capitalist norms. So I don't think people like Putin will ever dare, you know, uh, uh, go all the way to restore capitalism like the way it is here. 
and uh, in the European countries. It will never happen. Thank you, comrade. So we can go ahead and go to the next section now. So this is going to be on war, housing, and jobs, history, and today. Yeah, thank you. And that's a good transition of what Comrade um, just said about housing and how much it costs. We're going to see first, um, really, and I want to thank um, the efforts of like the archival committee that we have, because a lot of this information now that we have it, um, I had access to like a library, and I found a lot of really good information thanks to that effort. Um, first, we're going to go to um, War Economy and Crisis by Hyman Loomer. It was written in 1954. And um, later we'll see another um, pamphlet that uh, we did update the statistics for today. But this one I kept the same. Um, I didn't have the time to go through it, but one, it also just talks about everything that we need to know about war economy and how it affects um, not just housing, but employment and our wages. And so we'll talk about, and this was mentioned earlier, significance of real wages. And this is from um, that book. There is a widespread belief that in the United States, in contrast to other countries, the effect of war economy is not to depress, but to improve the living standards of the workers. And in particular, to raise the level of real wages. And remember, we were just talking about that real wages is really what your purchasing power is. It's, it doesn't actually have to do with the nominal number of dollars you make. Indeed, much has been made of this by the warmongering protagonists of the American way of life. It is essential, therefore, to examine the actual trend of real wages in wartime and in periods of extensive war preparations in order to determine whether or not this allegedly exceptional position of the United States has any basis in fact. Real wages or wages in relation to prices are a most important measure of workers' purchasing power. However, they are only a partial yardstick. For one thing, they generally describe the status only of those workers who are employed and hence do not take into account the ravaging effects of unemployment, nor do they show the destructive effects of discrimination and segregation, which force the black worker especially to pay sky-high prices for inferior goods and the most fantastic rents for the most wretched housing, and thus render his purchasing power considerably less than that of white worker, of the white worker receiving the same money wages. In addition, there are certain factors which become especially pronounced in wartime. Chief among these are greater food requirements as a result of longer hours of work and speed up, increased living costs arising from the uprooting and shifting around of workers and their families the wartime deterioration in quality of consumer goods with no corresponding drop in prices and the growth of black markets in the necessities of life. Not a considerable extent, these factors can be measured or estimated and their effects included in computations of real wages. 
To that extent, their complete omission in official cost of living statistics represents a deliberate distortion, but they are only partially subject to measurement. Hence, real wages, real wage statistics in wartime must increasingly overstate the actual level of purchasing power. Um, so this is great because like I would argue Comrade Marx, Comrade um, Loomer is going to take the capitalist statistics on their word and going to use their statistics to show that even by their means, they still have a inefficient um, you know, system that uh, creates more crisis than, than good. And if you look at that graph to the left, all you don't really need to look at any of the numbers. All you have to know is that that green line is purchasing power and the orange yellowish line is actual dollars through the years. And you can see, and this was um, done um, in 2018, really um, purchasing power stays relatively the same. It actually was a little high in the 70s compared to it was in 2018. The fight for higher wages in wartime or under conditions of growing war preparations is, is simply a part of the never ending struggle which the workers are compelled in wage under all conditions against their growing impoverishment and without which, as Marx states, they would be degraded to one level mass of broken down wretches past salvation. This struggle is especially important in the conditions of a war economy from which the big capitalists derive enormous super profits through increased exploitation of workers. The fight for increased wages is therefore absolutely indispensable in the struggle to offset the effects of inflation. Without the wage increase, the degree of inflation would be no less, but the gap between prices and wages and the impoverishment of the workers would be all the greater. Moving on to basically the time of uh, before it, since the close of the First World War, every capitalist country has been plagued with chronic mass unemployment, with the existence of huge reserve army of unemployed workers not fully absorbed even in peak periods of peacetime booms. To this pattern, there has been but one exception. Only in times of war have the armies of unemployed been absorbed and a condition of full employment temporarily restored. In fact, and this was written in the 50s, in present day capitalism knows of no other means of eliminating unemployment. And I think that's effective for today as well. It has become a commonplace, says Be Beveridge, that the only sovereign remedy yet discovered by democracies for unemployed is total war. In the characteristic manner of capitalism, this state of chaos was left chiefly to resolve itself. As war production approached all out levels and as the demand for workers in war plants became ever more frantic, growing number of workers and their families migrated as best as they could to the centers of war production there to shift for themselves as conditions of extreme shortages of housing, schools, health facilities, and other essential needs. The situation in a typical boom town of Mobile, Alabama is described 
by Carson as follows. And you can see that picture on the right. That was one of those boom towns that was created. It doesn't look too happy. Um, around the city is a ring of unhealthy looking tent and trailer camps with no sewage, no water system, and only a road toilets within the city, despite the willingness of many native families to take war guests into their homes. Workers with families can find practically no place to live. They look for tents, trailers, and shacks outside the city. Single men are more fortunate. They can choose between the extravagantly priced private rooms or hotbeds, nightmarish boarding houses, or their own cars, if still holds together. In the face of these conditions, a score of cities doctors have gone into the army. So the it wasn't really that lavish for people in the U.S. during the times of war. Uh, next slide, please. Um, and in, in these living conditions, as these which for millions of American workers were associated with the wartime full employment boom, although there is no doubt that far more could have been done to alleviate than ah, my eyes than was actually attempted. Such conditions were no uh, for were not fortuitous, but an inevitable consequence of the one-sided chaotic character of war production and employment. And when at the end of the war, demobilization and reconversion to peacetime production took place and the same confused reshuffled of masses of human beings was repeated, this time in reverse. Monopoly capital can hold out only one solution to go on endlessly expanding military production to an all out level and to thrust the nation into a new world war, either mass unemployment and depression or the fruitlessness of an atomic war. These are the alternatives to which reliance on war economy as an answer to unemployment leads, which is actually kind of a scary thought. And in the 30s though, American labor fought against such false conceptions. And in 1936, Franklin D. Roosevelt speaking before the Inter-American Peace Conference in Buenos Aires said, vast armaments are rising. The work of creating them employs men and women by the millions. Such employment is false employment. It builds no permanent structures and creates no consumers. Goods for the maintenance of a lasting prop, uh, prosperity. We know that the nations guilty of these follies inevitably face the day ever when their weapons of destruction must be used against their neighbors and when an unsound economy like a house of cards will fall apart and how these words apply to the suicidal course of the American ruling class. And then finally, um, Hyman Loomer mentioned about wartime economy and blacks, and this is still relative to today, the limitations of the wartime gains of the black workers within the bounds of Jim Crow pattern is nowhere more clearly demonstrated than in the respect of housing. Here, the pattern of discrimination remained virtually untouched. The effect of the extensive cityward migration was to crowd the black people still more into an already greatly overpacked ghettos from which there was almost no outlet. To be sure, there developed a general housing crisis affecting all sections of the working class. But the significant fact remains that while some means of alleviation were found for whites, almost nothing was done to ease the desperate plight of the black urban population. 
literally in advance was literally no advance was made in cracking the Jim Crow ghetto system. All in all, says Haywood, I believe that's Harry Haywood, the war boom forced a temporary breach in the bastion of job Jim Crow. The precarious beachhead to industrial opportunity was widened. The job ceiling was slightly raised, but the pattern was not broken, referring to Jim Crow. And you see there on the right, those are those uh, redlining maps that um, have, you know, we've seen in the city, which is basically banks and governments drawing um, basically um, incomes, but really it was on lines of race um, on where they would actually uh, give loans to, for mortgages um, to benefit people to get housing. Um, all right. And that's probably a good place to take a break um, because the next part is about housing and jobs and security or in and housing. Uh, yeah, more really of just a comment than a question. I think this class has been really, really great. It's been really hard to come up with questions just because I've been like just learning so much. And I would have to say that this class has made me incredibly hopeful, honestly, like hearing about Soviet housing actually makes me think that a better future is possible. And then I guess if I have to say anything is I feel like the only public housing that capitalism is really capable of building are prisons and jails. Thank you for that, comrade. I definitely agree with that. Yeah, as far as public housing in the U.S. goes, um, where I live, uh, Syracuse, New York, it has one of the old, well, I think it's um, the oldest uh, public housing projects in the state of New York. And I mean, not just uh, Syracuse, but all over the board, all these uh, properties, which um, they're being converted to uh, it, well, that I, I I don't know the exact. They they call it Section Nine. It, it used to be Section Eight housing. Now it's going into this hybrid, uh, privatized, and sort of public. But really, what they're doing is, and they advertise it as being, uh, they're trying to attract affluent uh, members of society into these areas to help boost the economy, but. Let's be real. These are these wealthy people. Once they move in, are they going to want to live next to um, these places where there's homelessness, where there's people that you know who you know with broken windows, with um, you know uh, drugs, whatnot? No, they're not going to. What they're really doing is they're they're uh, making it sound cushy. In reality, over time, it's just going to push those people who already live there into 97. a new mode and just uh, spread that uh, poverty elsewhere. So I just wanted to state that. It's uh, disgusting. Okay. People have to understand something. I learned this when I was in the old party. Actually, Gus gave a talk, that's all. The reason why it's not beneficial for economies to gear towards war is because in a peacetime economy, you make a refrigerator. This is what I was taught. 
That refrigerator will last a certain number of years. In a wartime economy, you make a jet plane. That jet plane is going to be destroyed in a few months because it goes into a war situation and it's gone. So it's not efficient. That's the word I was taught. It's not efficient to have a wartime economy. A peacetime economy lasts much longer, the products it produces. Think about it. You produce a car, lasts X numbers of years. You produce a armored vehicle to go into a war zone. What happens to it? It's relatively destroyed in a short period of time. Thank you. All right. Thank you, comrade. So we'll go ahead and go back to the uh, presentation now. Okay. Um, thank you. So now we're taking things from housing and jobs in a blueprint for survival. I'm really just using some similar methods or we're, we're using similar methods that this um, pamphlet, I believe that was written in 1983 or four um, and updating a lot of the statistics, but using the similar verbiage, because really, it doesn't really, the numbers don't really matter, to be honest. It's the same trends that are happening, if not getting worse. Um, and and that's really the takeaway. So we could just update it. We could update all the Hyman Lumer work as well. Um, so housing in America is facing its worst crisis since the 2008 housing crisis. And this is talking about today, 2023. Home builders can no longer afford to construct moderately priced homes. Rental units are becoming increasingly scarce and costly, and available housing is siphoned off by those who can afford it. Housing has become an attractive investment for the wealthy. A little more than 1 million housing units are built every year since 2011, though we need to build about 2 million units each year to keep up with the housing demands before the end of 2027. No, these are very um, liberal bourgeois statistics um, that are coming out. So this is on their metrics that it's coming out. And I think that's the beauty. You could use their, their numbers and it still looks bad. The current median price in 2023 of a new home is $480,000. Um, that's a lot of money almost double of what it was in 2023, which was somewhere in the 200,000 range. To build a house or buy one, a bank requires that mortgage, a mortgage payment, which is basically just a, a giant loan for a house, um, not exceed 20% of those, the household's income, which means that a family making 70,000 gross, and that is the um, medium household um, income. And a median is just, it's for, it's the middle number. If you took all of the incomes together of the entire country and you found the middle number, that's a median. So it's like an average. Um, borrowing at 7.5% interest, and that is the, the rate now. It actually might be a little bit higher now, but can't attain a loan for more than $210,000. So I want to keep that in mind because I just mentioned that the median um home was actually 480,000. So if you think about it, you can't really get a good house with half the amount of what the median is. And of course there's always exceptions, but that is the median. And so in large aggregate numbers, Americans can't buy a house. 
which doesn't and so which doesn't go far in today's market. And um, capitalism is a system that creates booms and busts in the economy. So in the past 50 years, homeownership in the U.S. fluctuates from 68% to 62%. And real quick, we could just look at that graph. Um, you don't need to look at the numbers, but if you just look at that, does just it's a it's not really a straight line. It's kind of just oscillates. Does that look like a stable system to you? Any sort of thing, it just goes up and it's like, oh, sorry, it has to go back down now. It's too high. And then it goes back down and then it goes back up again. Oh, sorry, it has to go back down again. It's too high. So, but that's people's houses that we're talking about. Um, next point is just in the past two decades, 2008 and 2020, home ownership percentage plummeted, leaving hundreds and thousands of new families and people without a home or left to pay someone else to live under a roof. And you can see that there in the graph. And even with apartments since COVID, eviction rates are at an all time record high where some cities have a 50% increase in evictions since pre-COVID. All right, and so these are kind of breaking down income and housing payments. So in 2023, Americans, whether they are renting or living in a house are paying higher and higher prices on their rents and mortgage proportional to their salaries and wages. Remember, um, the Soviet uh, citizens, they were paying less than, I think it was less than like 10% on average, but it was something reasonable. And then 20% of all of their extra incomes or taxes that they had to pay um, in, in housing situations. So they got 80% back. But here, the for the US citizens, they're paying just for housing, um, Households paying 30% or more, that is 31% of the total um, American household, um, well, basically the American citizens. And that leaves 50% of renters. That means one in every uh, 50%, half of all renters are paying 30% of their income. You, it, I, I, a lot of us are in that range there. And it gets even worse when we look at this 50% on the right. Households paying 50%, that's half your income. And remember, this is before income taxes or medical bills. This is your full gross income of, of your what you take in. 50% of that going to ho uh, housing. That is 14% of the U.S. population of that buy that houses. That is 25% of renters. So one out of every four renters pays half of their income to their um, to live, and then 9% uh, for um, like owners of houses. But the thing that I didn't point out here, or I, didn't, I don't show a graph, is the poorer you are, the more you must pay. Um, it doesn't stop at 50%. There was a 60%, there was a 70%, and households um, that pay 50% or more, just on that one, it's basically in the 50,000 annual income bracket. So that is less than the median, $50,000 isn't going to get you very much, but they're paying on most of their income just to um, housing. So you could see why this situation is bad. Um, and that was coming from the Census Bureau of the US. So that's on those statistics. Uh, next slide, please. All right, the US in crisis with housing and jobs. So compared to 10 years ago, these, uh, there are more people renting than owning houses. 
there are more people working more than one job to pay rent or mortgages. They are also forced to live with other people to pay rent. It takes longer to pay off mortgages. There are more people, there are more people moving from the coast, though, like from California, because they're outpriced and moving to other locations, which makes it more expensive in those places. So this is not just there, but Florida, I know they're going to get hit really bad with a really bad hurricane. Um, and people can't afford those houses, so they're moving in and it's going to become more expensive. There are more areas in the cities for people living in tents, which are eventually displaced to other locations. Remember that from COVID. Uh, there's one in um, uh, uh, one of those housing or those tent camps for the houseless. And next slide, please. Okay, last slide. Um, connecting it all to the U.S. military. Um, unemployment may be low right now. It's at 3.6%, but median income for a week is only a $1,100 before taxes. And then for part-time workers, it's at $358 a week. Um, and those are not, obviously not livable wages. Many people today are employed with gig jobs. People have work, but it is not necessarily work that applies their skill set. And so they are not making good wages or, and are forced into worse conditions. We need to take steps towards realizing full housing and full employment. So like the work on um, Blueprint for Jobs and, um, and Housing, um, I created, recreated this uh, graph right over here. Um, and really, uh, if you look, well, I'll, let me go through these real quick. But in 2020, let me read the rest of this. For military, taxpayers in the United States are paying $920 billion in just um, the military budget. That means your income. Uh, the government loses decent paying jobs when it puts money into our defense budget instead of putting money in housing like construction jobs, which can build houses. So it's like um, hitting uh, two birds with one stone. As the chart shows, $3 billion spent on military hardware such as guns, tanks, or missiles provides about 15% fewer jobs than that would be building new homes or apartments. And those military jobs, unlike construction work, are concentrated in a few areas of the economy, which means it doesn't go very far. And if your job, you, it's harder to find a new job and it doesn't diversify the economy. So if you look at this graph to the right, you could see that the missile and the tanks are less than the hammer in the, the, the cutting saw. Um, that's just showing you that there are more jobs created, uh, $3 billion of investments to the military and housing and construction on those. And you could see that the jobs, and really these are just direct jobs. Um, and that's the model that they use. And this is a very linear model. Um, I know as Marxists, we don't like linear things, but we're just using um, what they're giving us, um, the, the Bureau Census. And, and when you start adding in people's incomes and the amount of money that that creates, the number of direct jobs or the number of indirect jobs is much bigger for construction than it is for the military. Um, so it's a no-brainer, but obviously we have this uh, capitalism and we have to have blue jeans. Um, and that's, I believe, the last slide for that section. All right, we'll stop for another round of questions and comments. Yeah, this is true. Everybody in our party knows that this is true. The young people especially, they know this. They can't even afford rents. Many of them can't live on their own. They have to move back with their folks. 
Some of them have to move in with two or three other people to pay the rent. It's crazy. My generation, uh, the baby boomers are much better off. Um, we were able to get apartments. I'll tell you how much my apartment was. A one-bedroom apartment, a nice living room, dining room, a bathroom, uh, one bedroom and a big kitchen, $220 when? 1977, when I came back from the Soviet Union. But ask us how much we were making then. Salaries. Salaries were 9000 a year. The top salary was 9000 a year, the average top salary. But we were doing better still then because we had just gotten out of the Vietnam War. 1975 it ended. And the economy went better. Shows you that the economy went better for the average person. As this draft shows you that was just done by Comrade Jake. So yeah, this the, the people in our party and the young people today in general, they ain't living this. They're all living this. Thank you. All right. Thank you, comrade. What also kind of strikes me as really odd is um, looking at the numbers for how much homeless there are in America. It's very odd, the discrepancy where I see, I see like low estimates of something like 500,000 or so. But if you search something like how many kids are homeless, it's something in like the millions of people that are homeless. I don't know which is more ridiculous about the scenario where if there's something as low as, well, I guess how it is there, but there's something around like 15 million vacant homes in America. So there's just more than enough housing already to just cover for them. They're just built. So, but... I don't know if that's more ridiculous with the low number than it is with the high number, which is an even bigger emergency. But it, it makes me wonder how, I guess, the old party became so anti-Soviet. And I just can't really wrap my head around that. That's all. Yeah, something that we're experiencing here in South Dakota, I mean, especially with rising rents and whatnot, I mean... Um, I can't remember who who said it, but we are having, uh, you know, we are having a lot of people from like California and Texas. A lot of people are moving to the area to buy up the houses here because they're, you know, pretty, pretty inexpensive compared to like, you know, places like California. <clears throat> but we've also seen a trend the last couple of years where people will come in, they'll buy houses and a lot of times they will offer uh, they'll offer an ad additional amount of money uh, to buy a house with no inspection. Um, and it's it, it, it's it's just crazy because I know people who have sold houses around here for, you know, 40,000 more just so they don't have to do any type of inspection. People can just buy it up and then they can turn it around, you know, and, and raise up raise up the prices, but not know what the condition of the house is in. So that's just uh, something that is becoming a trend around here. It's very worrisome to me. All right. Thank you, comrade. Yeah. So one thing um, we didn't talk about in this is um, housing bubble. Um, in our last big one was in 2008, but they happen about every 13 years. Um 
But the, you know, the, the thing is under a capitalist system, since housing is a, a commodity for profit, um, basically investors will, um, they'll buy up properties, which drives up the prices of houses, which gets other investors excited. So they start buying more. Eventually the prices of housing goes way beyond what people can afford. And that's when you have a burst. Um, and it, it's basically like a recession, um, you know, uh, an economic recession where now all the construction on housing <clears throat> is put to a complete stop. And I'm sure most people have seen um, the term I know them as are, uh, they're called McMansions. Uh, but basically these giant um, uh, real estate corporations, they'll build a lot of these like cookie cutter houses, these huge, um, I, I don't even know how many how, how many rooms they are. They're, they're all mansions and they're meant for a single family. But anyway, these companies, these companies, they end up going bankrupt because of this uh, bubble burst and they stop construction. So you have all these houses that could fill up with a lot of families that are just laying empty and decay. This is, uh, you know, just another thing in capitalism that's completely insane. All right, thank you, comrade. We'll go ahead and watch this Henry Winston video and try and get as much of it in before the end of the class. Yeah, when I finished uh, that, I, uh, I became uh, head of the uh, youth section of the unemployed councils in Harlem. Uh, later, I was to become a city head of the Unemployed Youth Council. Okay, tell me about those unemployed councils in uh, New York and in Harlem. You were involved in like the evictions, yeah. the rent strikes, was that? Yeah, it was many-sided. Uh, for example, uh, take the question of unemployed youth. One of the biggest problems existing at that time was the fact that uh, not only were they unemployed, but uh, had no place to live. And one of our big efforts was the fight to create shelters for the youth. Uh, we uh, fought for the right to uh, build uh, youth centers for the unemployed in Harlem. Uh, and this was a part of the general fight of the whole unemployed council, which took in the area that you're interested in. Uh, namely, the fight for relief uh, for the unemployed. Uh, and on that score, I think we were quite helpful, quite successful. Uh, we made better progress generally than uh, we did in terms of uh, youth shelters for the youth. Can you give me specific kind of specifics, again, as many specifics or for examples of kinds of things you did that stand out in your mind? Do you remember? Like victory, you know what I mean? Like you, there was a thing that you fought for and you won or you fought for and you lost. Uh, well, that's a very interesting period. Uh, for example, if we went to the um, welfare uh, station within, with, with the delegation, 
and we uh, raised the question of relief for this uh, that family, and there was resistance. Uh, uh, this or that kind of thing, and we had a sit-in, and we sat until we won. That was cause for quite some <laughs> happiness that we won. Or, for example, if say you uh, sell furniture on a street, we were successful on any number of occasions uh, to get everybody in a given block uh, to help put the furniture back into the apartment. Did you participate in any of those? Oh, yes. Give well, the, the question is that a sheriff, you know, would come with a warrant to evict somebody, you know, who had not paid their rent. Well, how could they pay rent when they didn't have it, really? And so they would set the furniture out on the street. So, if, say, in the community, as was a particular case, the neighbors picked up the bed, picked up the chairs, the furniture, and put it back in, that was uh, SOP in those days. I cannot claim so credit for that. I participated in these kinds of uh, actions. I heard that people would say, call the Reds, the sheriffs, you see with big so and so on. Yes. Did, that, did you hear that? that? That was all over, all over. Okay. Well, no, but you see, it was so powerful, I, uh, I wouldn't be complete if I didn't say. Uh, fighting against evictions was of such a massive character when there was a threat. The sheriff would come, not always, was the furniture put on the street. Somehow or another, among many of the sheriffs, simply developed for the fight. Why should we put this poor woman out on the street? You know, so the problem uh, that in the course of it, uh, you probably heard from many others, uh, this fight for the unemployed merged with the demand for that resulted later in WPA, in PWA, you know, this sort of thing. And the uh, fight for hiring, although it is well known that the United States never pulled out of this crisis, so most people call it depression, until 1939. But it's true that as the fight uh, developed, more and more of the demands of the unemployed was won. Now, uh, uh, did anyone talk to you about how in Harlem uh, the fight extended to breaking down this discriminatory barriers in transportation. Uh, no, can, can we, like I did, like, can we just hold one second? Yeah, no, you just, so you know. Okay. 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 So, uh, so what, uh, okay, you can just talk about what happened then in, in Holland during this period if you were there. Yeah. Well, uh, it's very uh, interesting, Harlem. Uh, during the days in which I worked as head of the uh, uh, youth section of the unemployed councils. Um, Harlem went through many, many problems. Harlem seemed to have been singled out by the men downtown as, quote unquote, a colonial possession. I say that advisedly. Because the oppression of black people in Harlem was colonial-like. It was during this period that mounted policemen used to ride through Harlem. Police Harlem. And they did so with a racism that did not escape a single black man, woman, or child. 
they terrorized the community. And the experiences of Harlem were such as to see these men as defenders of segregation, defenders of discrimination. Because even in Harlem, there were separate eating places for white, for black. Uh, take, for example, Hill's uh, restaurant on the corner of Harlem. Blacks could not even, uh, 125th Street in Lenox, whites could not go in there. Blacks. blacks could not enter. I'm sorry. Blacks could not enter there. So the Young Communist League, together uh, with the Young Liberators, organized picket lines to break down discriminatory barriers, break down discrimina uh, discrimination in hills. But so it was with other such places in Harlem. Hills, white owned. White owned. And catered to the uh, uh, white uh, mill strata who worked in offices in that area. But more than that, you'd see one of the best possible restaurants in Harlem was that of Frank's. Blacks could not eat in Frank's. This is the center of Harlem. But this was many, many more. The Cotton Club also was there. That's correct. Absolutely. Absolutely right. Uh, the, the Cotton Club, uh, blacks could not frequent, even though uh, the entertainers were black. So in the very heart of New York, and dead in Harlem, you had Jim Crow facilities, completely segregated. So you can imagine the feeling of a whole community, those on the picket line, looking up and seeing the mounted police riding through Harlem. Or, if, say, as Adam Powell later organized, a movement among all blacks around the issue of hiring blacks in telephone, breaking down the discrimination which refused to hire a single black. He developed a technique that was duplicated many times over throughout the country. What was that technique? It was instead of paying your light and gas bill in dollars, before that, change those dollars into pennies, then line up to pay your bill. And when they start paying bills with pennies, each penny has to be counted. They will be compelled to conclude that they need additional help. And it worked. Is this a technique now, it wasn't quite clear, technique that you involved the YCL or was this Adams? Well, this was the whole people. This was not uh, my idea. This was Adams' uh, idea as part of a coalition in which participated Ben Davis, the first black communist in the city council in New York, and practically most churches Wonderful. in Harlem. Yeah, that's right, you see. And it worked. And so uh, soon after that, the, the um, black uh, women primarily received employment with telephone. But the same thing was true with Western Union. Then, uh, I'm sure you're acquainted with uh, this. The boycott movement, not in Montgomery, but in New York, of the uh, bus companies 
that Adam initiated, that there no bus could come through Harlem, which refused to hire blacks, worked. And we are at uh, 625 uh, Pacific, which means that we're going to have to do our wrap-up. I hope that all you comrades enjoyed today's class. Like we said, it was jam-packed. That's why it went up to the last moment. So uh, thank you for all of your different comments and uh, questions in tonight's class. And thank you to the Housing Commission. Thank you for watching this full-length class from the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. For more information or to join our free classes, visit our website, check out our YouTube, listen to our streams on Spotify, and chat with us on Reddit.